Wasn't that some awesome, awesome worship? That was awesome. I just love that song. You're a good, good father. Looks like I'm going to get myself situated here. I'm going to try and use this stool. So give me two seconds. All righty. Well, good to see everybody. Um, if you have your, your sermon notes here, we're going to be using these today. Um, one of the things when I was talking to the folks about coming to Martha Bowman, um, I said, look, i gotta, I got to be honest with y'all. I've not preached a lot, but I've done a lot of Bible studies. And so today is going to be probably more of like a Bible study kind of on, on Ruth than it is really a sermon. So I invite you to take out your sermon notes there and follow along. If you've got a pen, we've got some fill-ins. One of the things that, um, that they teach you if you're in education is that um, people forget 90% of what they hear. So when you, you know, if you're listening to a sermon, if you are one of the most intelligent people in the room, if you paid attention with every ounce of energy and mental you know, capacity that you have, within 24 to 48 hours, you have forgotten 90%. So anyway, that's a good thing for us who are communicators because that means you know, if we say something stupid, maybe you'll forget. Or you could be like Haynes and you'll just laugh at us the next week. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, I invite you to take your pen and maybe circle and follow along because the more you get engaged in the message, the more likely you are that you're going to hear it and then you're going to remember it. And also, you'll be participating in this because God's going to be speaking to you. And it might not be something that I say, but it might be something that he's speaking to your heart. And I don't want you to miss that. So I hope you'll write that down if you like. Today, we are finishing up our sermon series on heroes. It has been an awesome time as we have looked at these great, big people. Uh, people who are well-known in the Old Testament, who are kind of larger-than-life figures. Today, we're going to be looking at someone a little different. Her name is Ruth, and in fact, there's a whole book that's written about Ruth. Uh, you'll find her story in the Old Testament. But before we dig into the scriptures, I want to just invite you to think about the question. And this is really what we're digging down on today is, and I've got it there in the top of your sermon notes, is what do you do when there's nothing that you can do? What do you do when you are in a situation or circumstance and really the only thing you can do is just lift your hands and go, well, you know, it is what it is. It just, it is what it is. I cannot change these circumstances. It is what it is. So the worship team, before y'all came in, we were kind of sitting around talking, and I was asking them, I said, what, what, is, what is your is what it is moment? And so Sarah was telling me that she is a music teacher, and she said sometimes when you have the musical productions and the things going on that, um, you know, things aren't going right, and really in that moment, all you can do is just kind of lift up your hands and go, you know, well, it, it is what it is. Um, Brooks was saying that he is involved with a campus ministry, and sometimes there are things that he would like to see, but, you know, it's kind of out of his control, and so he kind of has to accept it, and just he says, well, it is what it is. So think about your own life. What would you say maybe is your is what it is moment? You're in a circumstance, you're in a situation, and you just really have to say, you know, it is what it is. I remember um, when I think back on my life, um, you know, of course, we've all had the big ones and we've had the little ones. But one that I remember in particular very vividly was when I was a young mom, Mary uh, was two and Elizabeth was a newborn. And so Mark at the time was doing campus ministry at the University of Georgia. And so his prime work time 
was after supper. He was working with college students, so, you know, he would be with me in the afternoons, which was kind of great, and, you know, we'd get supper on the table, and we kind of had some family time, but then about six o'clock in the evening, he would leave, and he would go to be in the dorms doing Bible studies with students and things like that. Elizabeth was colicky, so for those of you who are moms and you've had a colicky baby, what would happen as soon as, you know, we kind of got hit about six o'clock, Mark would walk out the door, and she would start crying uncontrollably, you know, drawing up her little knees and her tummy would hurt. And so if I held her and rocked her, you know, kind of bounced her on my knees, then she would kind of settle down. Now the problem was, was Mary was there too. And she was not really happy that we had brought this new person into her world and she was no longer the center of our family. And um, maybe Liz might, maybe, um, <laughs> they might be having something similar at their house, I don't know, with the new baby. But anyway, but what I would notice was every time I picked up Elizabeth, I could get her to stop crying, but Mary would just start screaming bloody murder. So if I put Elizabeth down and picked up Mary, Mary would, would stop crying. She would be happy. Now you might think, well, why didn't you just hold them both at the same time? Well, then they both would scream bloody murder. So I thought, well, you know, it is what it is. What can I do? I, you know, I, I, it is what it is. This too shall pass. So what I did was I would just kind of look at my watch, and so at 6 o'clock, I would hold Elizabeth and prompt her. Mary would scream bloody murder. 6.10, I would set Elizabeth down, and I would pick up Mary, and I would play, and I would talk with Mary, and Elizabeth would just scream a bloody murder. 6.20, I would just do this, and I thought, you know, I might be screwing up my kids for life. I don't know, but at some point, I knew I just had to get through it. You know, so the thing that I would say to myself, it is what it is, it is what it is. As you think about your is-what-it-is moment, sometimes it's something simple like a crying baby, but sometimes it's something that's a lot harder. You know, it might be if you're a teenager, or it might have been when you were a teen, your parents called you in and they said, we need to have a family conversation. And that might have been when they told you that they were getting a divorce. You know, it might be that you're a high school student and you're hoping to get into a particular college and your SATs weren't what you had hoped and a door is being shut going to the school that you had really, really, really hoped that you would get into. It might be a medical diagnosis, um, not one that's going to kill you, not one that is going to, you know, be your, it's not terminal, it's not fatal, but it might be changing the quality of your life. It might even be the condition of your marriage. It might be that you and your, your spouse have said, you know, we're, we're not going to get a divorce, but the marriage is not in a good place and you don't want to change, and he doesn't want to change, and it just, it is what it is. All of our lives, we find ourselves in those situations where we're faced with our it is what it is moments. The good news is, is that God is present and God is with us. And I think that the story of Ruth will give us in some insights into how God would have us walk through our is what it is moments. So let's pick up here in your outline here, and I'll just kind of set the story up. The book of Ruth comes in the Old Testament. Now, the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, kind of how it's laid out, there's two sections of it. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament begins at Christmas with the birth of Jesus and, and the stories of Jesus, the gospel, the, the birth of the church. But all of the stories in the Old Testament, these are the stories of the people of God prior to Jesus' birth here in the earth today. 
So you start off in the Old Testament. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You've got the big stories, the stories of creation. You've got Moses and how, you know, God parted the Red Sea. Movies have been made about this. You've got the burning bush. You've got all these big events. You come into Joshua. They go into this promised land that God has promised. There's all these, you know, you've heard that the story of Jericho and there were the walls around Jericho and the people of God marched around. Miraculously, the walls come tumbling down. I mean, just story after story after story. And then you've got this small story, four chapters long. It comes after the Judges. And, and on the other side of it is First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Then you've got the big stories of David, national stories of God dealing with kings and, and national leaders. But Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi, these are two peasant women, two women who are living on the margins of society, two women that are not going to have any kind of political power, they are not going to have any kind of economic power. They are not going to have any influence that you would think because of their state, one, because they're women, two, because of their financial situation. And right in the middle of these great big epic stories, God gives us Ruth. And I think he invites us to see something in, our, in their story that is also a part of our story. So let's pick up here at the beginning. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, and that's talking about the chapter that comes, I mean the book that comes right before Ruth, the judges, there was a famine in the land. A famine. You know, we don't really think about famines. Um, yesterday, Mark and I were moving our daughter. Uh, she lives in Augusta, and so she was moving from one apartment to the other. We had had lunch, and we, it was late when we were leaving. And I, and I remember I was hungry. Like, we, we didn't have time to get supper, and then we were kind of driving these back roads in Georgia. And I was getting extremely cranky because I was hungry. And I was thinking about the story that I knew that I would be talking about today, and I thought, Lord, shame on me for being cranky to my husband because I am an hour late on my, you know, eating. These women knew hunger. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, now Bethlehem, this would be in Israel, this would be where the people of God lived, and you're familiar with Bethlehem, eventually one day this is where Jesus was born. A certain man of Bethlehem in Judea, he went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, Moab was a neighboring country to the east. And in Moab, at times in Israel's history, they were fierce enemies of Moab. Other times there was some, you know, maybe kind of a peaceful coexistence. But one of the things that we know about Moab is that they did not worship the one true God. And in fact, one of the practices in that culture was to sacrifice children in hopes of getting the favor of the gods. And this is the land, because of economic hardship, that they go to in hopes of finding food. They go to the country of Moab, and this certain man, it was his wife and his two sons. So this little family, they take off, they travel in search of food, in search of a better life. But Elimelech, I'll tell y'all, his name is difficult. So anyway, we're going to say Mr. E. The husband of Naomi, he died, and she was left with her two sons. 
Now, just for a moment, put yourself in Naomi's shoes. And, and times were different then, but now your husband, the, the provider, your protector, your friend, he is gone, and you're left with two sons. We don't know how old they were at the time of his death, but they grow up, and it says these sons took Moabite, Moabite wives. So they marry women there in the, in the community where they're living. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, the woman that our book is about. And when they had lived there for about 10 years, then both Milan and Chilion, those are her sons, they also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi had found and had lived into her it is what it is moment. What was she going to do? She's all alone. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. They hear that God has blessed Bethlehem. God has blessed the land of God. So she makes the decision to go back home, to go back to Bethlehem. And the two daughter-in-laws, they say, well, we'll go with you. And they get to the, we imagine, scholars think it was probably the edge of the city. The, the girls go travel with her, hope that's what scholars think it might have looked like, to the edge of the city, which was the custom of the day. And she stands there with Ruth and Orpah, and she says, all right, y'all need to just go back home. She said, I can't provide for you. I cannot give you husbands. Even if I were to have a child right now, there's no way that son could grow up, you know, and one day be a husband for you. Go back to your family. Go back to your God. Let me go. She said, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She uses that phrase. She said, my bitterness is greater than what you are facing. Go back to where you could have a life. And if you're familiar with the story, Orpha cries, hugs her neck, goes back to her family. But Ruth says, no, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And they begin to travel back to Bethlehem. Now, this sets us up at the beginning of the book, and we're not going to have time to read all of the book today, but I invite you to this afternoon, it's not going to take you very long, um, pull out your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can pull it up on a, an iPhone, the internet, BibleGateway.com is a great place, there's different Bible apps, and I invite you to read the rest of the story, because it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. And this is the beginning of that. But I want to invite us, and I've got a few um, fill-ins right here that I want us to look at. Some things that Naomi and Ruth did in their it-is-what-it-is moment that I want us to consider and I want us to think about. And the first one there in your fill-in is run to God and not away. One of the things that we see here in this passage in Ruth it says, so Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I think one of the things that when you're not doing well, when something tough has really happened, and I mean tough, there is this moment where you want to ask the question, 
If God were God, why would he have let that happen? If God were God, and I don't care how spiritual you are, how mature you are, that is a question that we all ask. Um, our daughter, Katie, I mentioned that Mark and I were moving her yesterday. She's in Augusta, and she's in grad school, and uh, she was doing, um, she's a, getting grad school for physical therapy, and she's doing a clinical rotation, and so she was telling us some of the stories of the patients that she has been observing. And one of the situations was just a terrible, tragic situation about a man who'd gotten struck by lightning. And Mark and I were driving home, and he said, you know, he said, you just have to ask the question, if God is the God of the universe, and God is over the storms, and God is over the weather, and lightning is so random, how, do, how does that happen? You know, where is God in the midst of that? Y'all, my husband has been to seminary. He is a minister, and he's asking that question. God, where are you in the midst of all of this? And so in that, when you're asking those questions, it's easy to let bitterness and anger come in and to say, well, God, if you're so good, I can't reconcile the bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move and stay in Moab. But Ruth didn't do that. She said, and Naomi didn't. They moved back to the people of God. And it's interesting, when they get to Bethlehem, the, the community welcomes them. The community is like, Naomi, it's you. They know her. I invite you, on the days when you want to crawl in the fetal position and just stay in the bed, on the days when you want to be angry and bitter and write the church off and write God off, those are the very times that you need to have your quiet time. Those are the very times you need to put yourself in community. Go to your community. You know, if you're in a Bible study, if you're in a men's group, if you're in a women's group, come to church. Come be with the people of God. The New Testament tells us that the church is the body of Christ. And there is something unique that happens when we gather together as a community of faith. Have you ever had that experience where maybe you were discouraged, maybe something was going on, and you walked into Sunday school class, or maybe it was somebody in the hallway, and they gave you a big hug, or maybe they just had a word of encouragement for you, or maybe there was the lyrics in the song that we were singing, and it was just what you needed to hear. That's what happens when we gather together as a faith community, and God is present among us. People who are hurting, when I'm hurting, when you're hurting, when we come, this is the place, one of the vehicles, one of the means of grace, one of the ways that God cares and loves and brings redemption out of the crazy brokenness in our lives. But that's what Naomi and Ruth did. They moved towards God. Now, you'd like to think, well, so Naomi, you know, she, she's like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to be with the people of God. And that she was singing happy songs along the way. Let me tell you, she was not singing a happy song. If you read there in that chapter, Naomi says when she gets to Bethlehem, now, now the scriptures don't tell us much about what the journey was like, but we do know that as soon as she gets to Bethlehem and the, and the people are like, oh, Naomi, I'm so glad to see you. The first thing out of her mouth is not, oh, it's great to be home. The first thing out of her mouth was, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. <clears throat> Y'all know what Mara means? Who knows? Bitter, that's right. She said, I have changed my name. My circumstances are so bad. They've been so hard. I have even changed my name. And
and she said, the Lord, I went out full, but now I have come back empty. And she goes and she recites this litany of how bad her circumstances are. Here's the thing that you need to know and I need to know. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our brokenness, we can be complaining of the storm, but still moving in the right direction towards God. Our second fill in there is be honest to God because he can handle our fears, our anger, and our bitterness. And that's what Naomi did. She did not sugarcoat it. She didn't gloss over it. She didn't pretend like life had been good. She said, no, it sucks. It's bad and it hurts and I feel bitter, but I'm going to move towards the people of God. I'm going to move towards God. A psalm that I have there for us is Psalm 55, and uh, this is just one of my favorite psalms. Um, I, I would like to say it's my favorite psalm because it came out of a good season in my life, but um, there was a time when I was in a, a situation where the, the work group that I was a part of, there was a lot of backbiting, there was a lot of slander, there was a lot of stuff going on, and it was a very toxic situation. And occasionally things would be said about me that I would think, that is not fair, that is not fair. And I had, like, like Naomi, I was a little bitter, got a little angry, was a little mad. And I found this beautiful little psalm that David writes about and he's kind of mad, too. There's been somebody who's been after him. In fact, he says, Lord, if it was like an enemy who was against me, I mean, I could handle that. But if it was my brother, my companion. And David just kind of pours it out there. So I've got here just an excerpt from this psalm. He says, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling have come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly and be, be I would fly away and be at rest. He was in Jerusalem at the time when he wrote this, and he said, you know, Jerusalem, that's supposed to be the city of God. That's where there should be peace. That's where there should be laughter. That's where there should be all this good, you know, harmony, all of that. And he says, no, it is a place of chaos. It is a place where uh, someone's speech is as smooth as butter, but their tongue is like a sharp sword. And he says, oh, I, I want to go to the wilderness. The wilderness, the desert would be better than this present circumstance. You know, David is so honest. If you feel like you have to sugarcoat it when you go to God, just read the Psalms. When, when David is hurt and mad, he tells you about it. When he is happy, when he is sad, he just pours out everything that he's feeling. But then, and this is the part that I love, David, the Psalms, is this pattern. Usually there's this, we can call it word vomit if you want to. Here's the yuck, here's the ugly, here's the yuck. And then, I, I didn't put this here because of room, but in verse 16, if you want to write that in there, uh, Psalms 55, 16, David, he vents, he gives you his rants, and then he says, but, but, but. Y'all know what comes after the but? But. I call upon God, and the Lord will save me. See, that's what Naomi did. I think that trip from, from Moab to Bethlehem, I just feel sorry for Ruth. Here was an elderly mother-in-law, and I think she was complaining every step of the way. Can you imagine her? You ever had a crying toddler? It's like, 
okay, shut up, move on. <laughs> Those Cheerios back there, <laughs> turn on the little movie. But there were no Cheerios, there was no movie. They were walking. But there was the but. There was the complaining and there was the but. You know, you just got to love David in his honesty. There's even one problem. And I, okay, I'm just going to say this is kind of one of my favorites, and this is kind of terrible of me, so I'm just going to get it out there. But uh, there's one where he is so stinking mad at his enemies, and he says, God, will you break their teeth? Can you imagine? I like Not like will you chip their tooth. It's like will you just break every tooth in their head? Yeah. But then, as you read that psalm, he says, break every tooth in their head. But I will call upon the Lord. And so... But I think in this is that we see that she ran to God. She was honest with God about her bitterness, but she also remembered the but. But God is bigger than anything that I've got going on in my life, and he is able. I think the next thing that we have to remind ourselves is this next one. It says, believe that God sees me. Believe that God sees me. This story, one of the many things that I love about it, I love where it's placed in the Bible. I love that it's placed after Judges, but before 1 Samuel. I love that it's placed between Gideon and Samson and Samuel and David and Elijah and Elisha. I love that it's placed right there in the middle because what it invites me to do is to say, God sees me and he knows my story. Because I think sometimes that's all we need to know is, God, do you see me? You know, when I had Mary and Elizabeth and they were just crying and screaming and everything, Mark wasn't home. I think that's one of the things I wanted God, I wanted to say, God, do you see me? God, am I doing a good job? God, am I screwing my kids up? God, do you care? And the resounding yes is, yes, he sees you. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he cares. Yes, he is present and with you right now. And I think sometimes if we can just get that question answered in our hearts, it's okay, and that gives us the strength to get through the hard things. You know, I think about people who have grown up in some family situations that it was really out of their control. Maybe you had a, a, a parent that was an alcoholic. Maybe you had a, a parent that was abusive. Maybe you had a spouse that's struggling with addiction issues right now. And, and it, it is what it is. And you can't go back and change the past. You can't fix them. You can't change them. You have to be Christ at right now in this moment. And I think sometimes if we can just say, if we can know God sees us, he knows us, he cares, he's with me, that is enough to help us get through our is-what-it-is moments. Matthew tells us, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Two birds, you can buy them for a penny. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground. Apart from your father, even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are more valued than many sparrows. Here's Ruth. Here's Naomi. Two peasant women. Two women living on the margins of society. God sees them. God cares. God knows. And God enters into their world to bring redemption. Our next thing I think that we learn from this story is to not grow weary in doing the right thing. Don't grow weary in doing the right thing. I'm reading a book right now, and the title of the book is Along Obedience in the Same Direction. It's by Eugene Peterson. 
And uh, if you're looking for a good devotional book, I just, it has been so rich and so meaningful to me this summer. But um, a long obedience in the same direction. And I've thought about that phrase. And, and in the book, he talks about true discipleship. In an instant society where, you know, we've, we've got the glitz, we've got the glamour, you have the television preachers, and, you know, and the next thing you know, someone's fallen from grace and it's all public and, and, um, and that grieves our hearts. But I think about those saints who have had a long obedience in the same direction. You know, when you think about having impact and you think about having influence for the kingdom, think about with me for a moment, who's somebody who has really exemplified Christ for you? Someone that you have looked at their life and you've said, you know, I, I want to be like that person. I want to suggest to you it is probably not somebody whose life is extremely holy. Like they just do everything right. They never make a mistake. They never sin. Because those people, they're just intimidating to me most of the time because I know what I'm like. <laughs> I had a friend at work one time who had just gotten married, and, uh, and she said, friend, she said, you know what? She said, I used to worry about my kids. She said, but you tell me all these crazy stories, and yours have turned out somewhat okay. She goes, I have hope now that my kids don't have to be perfect, but it will be okay. And I said, thank you. She goes, and you even tell me, like, the crazy stuff about your marriage. I mean, you and Mark get in fights. And she goes, that gives me hope. And it's like, I'm so thankful that my crazy, mixed-up life gives you hope. <laughs> but it, it's not my victories that gave her hope. It was my failures that I would come in the office and go, oh, my gosh, what are we doing? What happened? So, but it's often not the people whose lives are perfect. It's often not the person who knows the most Bible verses, the person who knows the most scripture. I mean, those people are wonderful, but sometimes they're so intimidating because you don't know all that, because you don't know all that. The people who have had the most impact in my life, and I bet the people who have had the most impact in your life, are the people who have gone through something really, really difficult, and they walk through it with grace, they walk through it with love, they walk through it honestly, they walk through it knowing, not perfectly, but knowing God who had them, and they walk through that. When I was um, a young mom, um, Mark and I were, you know, the early stages of our marriage, and we were kind of in a transition with his job, and there was a short period of time that we moved in with his parents, and Mary was a baby, and I've looked, I thought about Mark's mom and what an example of what it means to be a godly woman. Um, at that time, Mark, so, so in the house, I'm just going to set it up for you, you've got uh, Marilyn and Charles, my in-laws. Mark's mother had, was uh, no longer able to live at home, so she was living at home with them. Then you had Mark, me, and a newborn, and at the time, Mark's two brothers were still living at home. So big family, and Marilyn, my mother-in-law, was working full-time. So crazy, crazy, and she was kind of the hub of the family. She was kind of the matriarch. She was the one that took care of all of us. And I can remember uh, Mark's grandmother needed help going to the bathroom at night, and uh, she was not able to get up and go by herself, and so she had a little bell. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, she would ring that bell. At 4 o'clock in the morning, she would ring that bell. And where I, I, we, the room where I was was upstairs, and then you had Granny's room was downstairs, and at that time, Marilyn was sleeping um, either in the lounge chair on the couch there in the den so that she could help her mom go to the bathroom. And in the night, when I would hear that bell go off, I would think, 
Marilyn's getting up right now, and she's going and hugging her mom to the bathroom, and then she's going to go back and sleep a couple more hours, and then she's going to do it again, and then she's going to get up, and she's going to go to work, and then she's going to get up, and we're all going to do supper together, and, um, you know, I think about my mother-in-law and what an example she was to me. You know, I was in my mid-20s, and I was a young mom, and I, t- I never told her then. I told her now. I never told her then what an example she was to me. Did she know that she was being an example to me, that she was influencing my life, helping me figure out the kind of mother, the kind of wife I wanted to be? She wasn't, she wasn't trying to impress anybody. She was trying to get through the day. But I was watching, and I was listening, and I was trying to be more like her. Never quoted scripture to me. When we look at Ruth, when we look at Naomi, did they know the impact that they were going to have on a room full of people today, some, what, I don't know how many thousands of years later? No way. They couldn't have known. They were just living their story, doing the best they could, complaining when they were bitter and hurt, moving towards God. But we know their story because it's in God's Word. Now, let me tell you something else about Ruth and Naomi. And for those of you who have grown up in the church, you might know this. So Ruth ends up getting married in the land of Bethlehem. That's a really neat, neat story. I encourage you to read that. She marries a man named Boaz. They have a child. That child, is named, his name is Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Does anybody know who Jesse was the father of? David. That's right. So here she is in the lineage of King David. Now, if you go to the book of Matthew, gospel, you know, the genealogy, the long genealogy that we often skip over at Christmas time so we can get to the, to the birth narrative, as they call it, to the Christmas story. So-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, 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 beget. Jesse's in all the begets. Ruth, she's there. Her story is remembered and carried down because through her child and through that child's child and through that child's child's child, we come to Joseph, who was the earthly father of Jesus. And as we hear their story, we echo that through the, through the generations as we, every Christmas, remember the birth of Jesus. So think about your it-is-what-it-is moment. If you're not one in one right now, I know enough about the world and humanity and the way life works. If you're not in one today, you have been or you will be because just that's what it is. So I invite you to think through kind of these next steps here. When you find yourself in that situation, run to God, not away. Be honest with God. He can handle your fear, your anger, your bitterness, but don't forget the but. Can't stay there in the bitterness and anger. Believe that God sees you and don't grow weary in doing the right thing. Because God sees you, he loves you, and he cares. He knows your story. Now, next Sunday, we are going to have the kickoff to our new sermon series, Baggage Check, Do You Have It All Together? We're going to be doing promotion Sunday. We've got a lot of fun things planned. Let me ask you this. So say you've been coming to this church for a long time, and you're walking with the Lord. I want to have us think about, we might be a Bethlehem to a Ruth and Naomi. What if next weekend, next Sunday, there is someone 
who once was in the church has moved away and now they're coming back home because of whatever their their spiritual famine is. Maybe they're bringing someone who has never been to Bethlehem, someone who has never been here. I want us to be that community of faith that surrounds them. I want us to be that community of faith that walks out when, there's, when we see somebody and we don't recognize them to say, hey, I'm Fran McGoney. Now, are you new here at Martha Bowman? Help them find a cup of coffee. Help them find a Sunday school class. Let's be the Bethlehem to surround those that God might bring into our community of faith and extend to them the love. Um, I shared this. I don't know if I shared this in here if I just shared it in the other service. But if I shared it in here, I'll, I'll do it twice because that's okay. It's a good story. <laughs> but anyway, we had somebody. It was my first week here at Martha Bowman, and there was a woman and her young daughter, and they had uh, run out of gas. And so she came into the church, and she asked if somebody could help her. So Tim got a gas can and went to the, to the gas station and got her some gas. And she was standing there in the hallway, and I heard her say to, I don't know if it was to Camille or to Lisa or who, but she said, she said is this a private church? Is this a private church? What she wanted to know was, could she come? And we were like, of course it's not a private church. Everybody's welcome. People don't always know that. So I want us to be that community of faith that does everything in the world we can do to say, no, this is not a private club. This is a community of faith, and we are so glad you are here. We, we will go the extra mile by parking up on the hill. We will go the extra mile to say, we love you. You are welcome here. And we wrap our arms of faith around people the way the community there in Bethlehem, the way Boaz did around Ruth and Naomi, so that they could be a part of their story of redemption. And if, I know that we've already filled out our communication cards, but I'm going to do one little plug. Um, if you are interested next Sunday, being a part of the parking team or being a part of the connect team, if you will, write your name and just um, the best way for me to reach you, and you can put it either on your chair, and I'll pick it up afterwards, or you can put it in the basket as you're leaving. But we are hoping to have lots of folks in the parking lot, lots of folks, you know, greeting and welcoming so that if folks aren't quite sure how to get to the children's ministry areas or how to get to the different worship spaces, that uh, we can direct them. So... Uh, Deb and Ted, I appoint all of you as Connect Team folks, but if you want to have a specific place and have the cute little lanyard, and um, and I can know I can count on you, you know, to be in a particular place or spot, let me encourage you to just write your name in the best way I can reach you, and I'll get in touch with you and tell you how to program. All right, well, let's pray.